Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay. If you are new to the show, I'm an investor. I'm just looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is James Grant, who is the founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Since the 80s, he has been tracking and interpreting Fed policy and is constantly today called on by media from around the world to make sense of Fed decisions, Fed Reserve decisions. Now, actually in 2012, during Ron Paul's presidential campaign, he said that had he won, he would nominate James Grant as Fed chair to replace Ben Bernanke. So this gentleman is very tapped in, uh, very informative interview. I really enjoyed this one. Quite a contrarian and you know, in line with that, his viewpoint on what rates might do is very contrarian. Most of the conversation around forecasting rates and prediction about you know this and that, what's the Fed going to do, always comes back to the Fed pivot. When is the Fed going to pivot? As if that's guaranteed. James makes a pretty compelling case that we just ended a 40-year secular decline in rates. Prior to that was a 40-year incline in rates, and we're now back to a 40-year increase in rates again. There will be ups and downs along the way, but generally speaking, that's where he feels we might be going. Now, obviously, we addressed address the national debt and how that's going to be tackled in that scenario. But lots of good stuff in this interview. I know you're going to enjoy it. As always, if you enjoy my work, I publish a weekly essay every Sunday. I love writing it. We talk about the biases, heuristics, and blind spots that lead to investors' best and worst decisions. I get phenomenal feedback from over 40,000 investors and would love to have you join the team. Hit that link beneath this piece of content uh, to learn more. And special announcement this is the last one, I promise. We are launching the Commodity University. This is the introduction to investing in the commodity sector. In my conference business, YouTube and newsletter, I've been bombarded with questions over the last 18 months from investors asking, how do I get started in building a portfolio in the commodity sector? So we've built a 10-chapter course walking you through the very introductory concepts, basic definitions, all this covering five major buckets of commodities in the metal sector, gold, silver, copper, uranium, and energy metals. Uh, and then into portfolio construction, 10 chapters. This is so fun. I love, I love the course. We're launching this September 30th. Hit thecommodityuniversity.com to get a notification for when we launch this or just go ahead and sign up. Thecommodityuniversity.com. This is the one-stop shop for anybody looking to build a portfolio in the commodity sector. All right. That's it. Here is James Grant. Enjoy. Okay, here I am joined by James Grant. James, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time today. Well, you're entirely welcome, Jay. Nice to be with you. So let's start with a big picture question. Uh, James, when you think through the history of the rise and fall of global powers and empires, you know, in hindsight, they all have a very defined start date and end date, easy to see when you're looking at the history books, harder to interpret in real time. If I were to ask you as an opener, where you think we might be in the life cycle of the American empire today, what would you tell me? I think I would first uh, first observe that the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is not a thin book. Um, these things all take time. And uh, you know, Adam Smith was uh, once uh, 
uh, the recipient of a letter by a very thoughtful but worried young man. This is in the 1770s, and a lot was going wrong with England at the time. And um, and uh, Sir Smith's correspondent uh, fretted about the public debt, about the progress of the war in North America, but also Smith. And uh, Smith remarked, quote, there's a lot of ruin, or a great deal of ruin in a nation. Meaning that, um, uh, well, the city of New York, for example, you, you, you look around and you see all sorts of terrible things and you realize that uh, uh, the city, uh, a little like the Catholic Church and Major League Baseball seems to have nine lives plus. Uh, so um, uh, I see a lot in the United States that worries me. I, I see uh, um, kind of, uh, you know, fiscal ruination to our very eyes. We see a $2 trillion deficit in a year of nominal prosperity. I see uh, uh, great profusions of uh, uh, bank credit, central bank credit that uh, is brought into being through the, uh, um, uh, through not quite arbitrary, but through the uh, not always well-informed deliberations of a panel of economists. And uh, these things a little bit uh, remind me of the uh, uh, financial decline and fall of great powers. But, you know, to take the case of uh, of England, in retrospect, one can see that uh, you know, the First World War rather knocked the stuffing out of that country, to use a phrase I think it, that uh, Paul Johnson used. And uh, uh, before World War One, uh, London was the financial center of the world, but pound sterling was... Uh, defined as a weight of gold bullion, and that weight was inviolable, and the pound sterling was thought to be itself a permanent fixture in the world's monetary affairs. And then, and comes the war, comes uh, uh, enormous debts and losses of that war, and suddenly London is no longer the center of the world, financially speaking. Uh, the pound is on its way to uh, decades and decades of, uh, of devaluation, and um, uh, so yeah, so 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 there are life cycles in nations and in empires. Uh, but just as you said in your question, Jay, um, in the moment, it is awfully hard to, to avoid falling into the trap of being, as they say on Wall Street, early. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'll take that answer. Now, when you think through those fractures that might point towards, I don't want to say an empire in decay because I feel like that's that's leading, and I don't want to do that. But you mentioned the deficit. We, you know, we could go and talk about the national debt. We could talk about internal conflict. But maybe let's stay in the world of finance. What strikes you, James, as the most vulnerable? chink in the armor right now in terms of financial instability within the United States? Well, I, I think there are many, uh, but not all of them um, unique to America. I think that the uh, financial vulnerability left by um, uh, more or less 10 years of uh, suppressed interest rates, that vulnerability is I think commonly shared in uh, in Asia, especially in Japan, 
perhaps, and uh, throughout Europe and in Britain and in North America. What is a little bit different about American vulnerability is the the position the United States occupies in the world with regard to its debt and with respect to its money. And uh, of course, we all know that the dollar is the uh, reserve currency, meaning it's kind of the Coca-Cola of monetary brands. It is ubiquitous. It is uh, well-regarded the world over. But it is... um, it is a problematical national treasure because it uh, affords us the right to which we have availed of ourselves, availed ourselves of um, of consuming much more than we produce. So the uh, the way to think about a, uh, a reserve currency is that it is a credit card rather than a debit card. If you pay your bills in a currency you don't print yourself, you are operating, as it were, with a credit card. With a debit card, sorry, you have to settle promptly. Uh, but we, not quite uniquely, but almost so, I guess we have uh, we have a national credit card, and it's called the reserve currency franchise. So what this means in practical terms is we um, we export dollar bills, we import merchandise and services, we export dollar bills. And the dollar bills wind up being invested in interest-bearing securities of the government that creates them. And the the paper trail of this, of course, is the immense holdings of treasuries, bills, and notes, and bonds, the part of our Eastern Asian Asian creditors. And um, what, what, what this does in the moment this imbalance of trade and payments is to facilitate the uh, uh, the deindustrialization of the United States. Uh, you know, we, um, uh, we use our currency to import rather than to produce. I'm generalizing now. Of course, we do export a fair amount, but, but uh, the, the reserve currency privilege has afforded us this opportunity of living on our credit. We have availed itself ourselves of it as who wouldn't i think if you uh, ask the good people of uh, zimbabwe or argentina where they wouldn't mind a little bit of the reserve currency life i dare say they'd say you know let us taste it um but that's so so you asked many too many minutes ago what what is concerning about the united states financial position so i i would say broadly speaking our monetary and fiscal arrangements, in particular, the privileged position of the dollar, and still more particularly in the imbalance between what we own of other nations, our investments in other and other countries. On the other hand, other countries' equity interests in us. We own much less of them than they do of us. That's another part of the paper trail. Of, uh, of the chronic imbalance brought about through our privilege in the dollar. So we emit dollar bills, they find their way into the world. We learn to uh, enjoy and to live with this great, we think, privilege, and uh, it makes us vulnerable in the future. Well, you know, it does because people tend to abuse privilege. Uh, and you could say that, I mean, you mentioned 10 years of suppressed interest rates. We've had access to really, really cheap capital. A lot of people have abused that privilege. 
Um, maybe I want to I want to pull on that thread a little bit because the most common conversation that I hear within the you know will the Fed pivot? Are we going to see higher for longer? All of this stuff. The dominant thread seems to be that we're going to see a pivot. We're going to see a return to uh, lower rates in a pretty short time period. You know that's debatable depending on who you're talking to, but you know the pivot will happen seems to be almost consensus, you know, you know, whereas you've pointed out um, quite correctly that rate increases and decreases tend to spread over 40 year time horizons. I mean, we, we sort of saw a, a general increase in rates from 1940 to 1980 and a general decrease in rates from 1980 to 2020. Um, and you pointed out this is more frequently a generational trend. So would you suggest that that trend will continue as we've seen it over the last 80, potentially 120 years? Yes, this is a question, Jay, of, uh, of um, almost pattern recognition and imagination rather than of empiricism, you know, or of, uh, of, a, of the application of a tested uh, scientific theory. There's nothing scientific about this. One observes. Uh, that interest rates have tended, note the past tense, have tended to move a generation length intervals up and down. They were, they fell through the last, call it 30 years of the 19th century, that is 1870 or so after the Civil War to about 1900, rose for 20 years, 1920, uh, declined uh, 1921 or so through 1946, sometimes with the help of uh, government suppression as in World War II. And then 1946 embarked on a 35-year rise, not uh, evenly, but persistently. It took 10 years for the rates to rise, even one percentage point. But then uh, in the 1960s, 70s, things began to pick up with the inflation of that era. So 35 years to the upside, culminating in 1981 with these uh, uh, these mountainous interest rates, the Everest of the long bond yield at 15%. My goodness, people could scarcely imagine it now. Um, and a retesting of those levels later on in the 80s, but it, things did peak in 1981. And there followed not 10, not 20, not three, but 40 years of irregular but persistent decline. 40 years. So um, you don't have to have uh, uh, do much imagining to uh, try to reckon with the uh, the, uh, the condition behavior that 40 years worth of shared experience will inculcate in an investment community. That's a, that's a lot of muscle memory. So you have to be, e yes, even older than I am, yeah, to have a, a vivid recollection of the before times. Uh, so what I do, I have uh, actually don't be that old, but uh, uh, I'm I'm here to tell you that uh, in 19 from 1966 call it through 1981, uh, people came to understand one thing about interest rates, and as they went up, that that was the shared experience, and at length became the shared conviction. And wouldn't you suppose that in 1984, when rates returned ever so temporarily to the heights of 81, almost that, that people would say, here is an opportunity to invest in 30-year securities 
yielding 13 and 14% U.S. Treasury, mind you. And you could buy what were then called strips or zero coupon securities with no reinvestment risk, meaning you didn't have to reinvest the coupon income at ever declining rate. You could, you could lock in 13 or 14% for 30 years, three, oh yeah, an equity return with no equity risk. And I can assure you that that proposition was met with a cold shoulder because, because people had come to see from 35 years preceding or thereabouts preceding that uh, bonds were a very, very questionable investment. So I'm not surprised now uh, to see uh, people saying, well, rates will come back down. And and to be sure, rates may, say we have a recession, we sometimes do. It would not be surprising in that the circumstance that uh, rates would have a cyclical decline in tune with the business cycle. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think, and again, this is uh, to underscore the provisional nature of all this and the um, and again, the, the nature of uh, of pattern recognition rather than uh, some sort of experiment in physics. But uh, so, I think it's, it's not unreasonable to put it that way to to suppose that we could be in for a very long period of uh, of rising rates, and the, you know the world will adapt. And there's no telling the tempo of the rise. It's been from zero to sixty miles an hour in about uh, ten seconds over the past year and a half or so. But uh, things might settle down. But um, you know, if if there is uh, a, a meaningful and protracted bond bear market, people learn all sorts of different ways of coping. There's, you know, there are some silver linings in that as well. So I'm not saying the, the uh, financial world is necessarily in in, uh, in uh, 40 years worth of hot water. Now I have to because I know I'll hear about this in the comments. Point out that maybe a difference today is the debt and maybe jerome powell is rolling out paul volcker's playbook but this is not as i've heard you say this is not paul volcker's economy and that playbook might not work this time and you know if we're in a higher for longer environment another secular rise in interest rates over the next 40 years with some corrections yes to mirror the business cycle how can the United States afford the interest expense on higher rates for longer? How do you see that playing out? Well, that's a fine question because suddenly interest expense is becoming a thing, right? It was um, uh, you don't have to be uh, uh, you don't have to go back many years to recall um, uh, certain monetary and fiscal statesmen saying that we should keep on borrowing because this is a kind of a modern monetary theory meme. Um, we are paying nothing for the debt. And don't you know that rates will be low indefinitely? So, uh, yeah. but uh, uh, Mr. Market is forever tossing us curveballs. And uh, now um, interest in the public debt is rising at a rate that will soon challenge the level of spending on defense. So it's becoming a very big line item in the in the budget. So you ask how it's possible. It's um, there are all sorts of ways this can be done. One is by spending less on other things. That seems not to be the most popular option. And the other way is by uh, inadvertently or through uh, malice aforethought is by suffering and and coexisting with a chronic level of inflation that we would not have dreamt possible not so long ago. Yeah. 
Because those cuts, I mean, what could you cut other than you mentioned military spending? I don't see that as probable. I might expect that cost to go up when we look at, you know, we've been borrowing money from China to have a lot of our high-tech weapons manufactured in China, all of this. We're trying to reshore some of that. Um, I'd expect, as a consequence, military spending to increase. I don't know if you think I'm on base, off base there. Otherwise, you could look at entitlements. That's political suicide. I, I can't imagine entitlements will get cut. But otherwise, I don't know what you could cut. You know, To your point, you could spend less, sure, but where do you spend less? And it's not an easy answer, especially when you're looking at two-year election cycles. Who's going to do that? Who's going to make the hard decision? Um, and so the second option is, is therefore, and do you think that's the only second option is just to become accustomed to persistently higher inflation, um, as a course of our life in the future? Is that, that I understand that correctly? Well, I'm not saying that I'm going to get accustomed to it, Jay. Others, <laughs> others, um, I don't know how, if, if you are going to assume there's no reduction in outlays, and if you're going to assume that interest rates um, do not, uh, you know, conveniently return to zero, a colleague of mine, Evan Lorenz, suggests that the way out of this might be to uh, suffer a recession. The Fed brings rates then again to zero and keeps them there indefinitely forever. He was being slightly facetious. But uh, so if we assume uh, no no change in, in our fiscal conduct and uh, um, and uh, and uh, a world that is as prone to uh, uh, conflict and ill feeling as the one in which we live. I don't think there's much uh, much obvious that's going to happen to prevent um, uh, outbursts of inflation, and uh, that seems to be part of the, the social democratic uh, choice we have made. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to um I want to get your thoughts on some of the impact that higher rates have had on the economy, but I I guess what I want to know is, you know, how much of the impacts have we actually seen thus far? And again, you know, I watching some of your content recently, uh, maybe it was an interview you did in the spring, you were saying, you know, had you asked somebody or told somebody in January of 2022 when rates were effectively zero, that by the spring of 2023, rates are going to be five and a half percent. You know what they thought the state of the market might be, and universally, almost anybody would have said it would crash. This would be, you know, an overnight capitulation in the market. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, I don't know if it's coming, but my my bigger thought around that is that things just take a lot longer to play out sometimes than we feel, and often when we attach dates to, you know, crises or events we expect to happen. That's a, rookie, that's a rookie mistake. You never give a date. <laughs> yeah, okay, because then the date comes and goes. Yeah. The event didn't mature. Were yeah, right. <laughs> you make the mistake of thinking, well, it's, I guess it's just not going to happen then, when in reality, right. these things just take longer. So, you know, what have we seen? What, you know, and what do you think is to come, though? And how far are we in really understanding the impact of higher rates? Because these things take a long time to trickle down into. Yeah the pocketbooks of your everyday uh, citizens. Yes, yes, they do. Uh, so there are a couple of thoughts here, Jay. One is that uh, uh, there are interest earners as well as interest payers in the economy. And the interest earning section uh, was doing rather well with these higher rates. And um, 
so there are beneficiaries. There are people who uh, forehandedly took out uh, fixed rate mortgages at uh, very low rates and who are not moving and um, uh, no crisis there. Uh, there are candidates uh, for what might be termed uh, uh, popping rivets on uh, on this vessel that is uh, is kind of coming under pressure. And uh, one is commercial real estate. Now that is proverbially a slow moving market. Transactions take a while. There's no listed, uh, buildings aren't listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, but what, what uh, our friends at Green Street, for example, are seeing is that, um, is that um, uh, the, the cost of capital is, uh, is rising and putting pressure on the valuations of buildings that were valued at, uh, at much lower rates of interest. And that um, I think the way they put it is when the cost of capital crosses the cap rate, uh, that that is a signal for deepening trouble in real estate. But, but, but let me put it this way. So um, uh, what we see in, for example, in um, in office buildings is that uh, uh, an office building that was appraised only say a few years ago um, that uh, that was uh, say a five hundred million dollar proposition we you see you see these new stores suddenly it's reappraised um, owing to uh, uh, rising interest rates. Be appraised at three hundred million. It's down. Um, it's it's down substantially. It's a huge percentage increase decreases in valuation in only a few years' time, owing to um, uh, the higher cost of capital, and of course to the uh, reduced occupancy attendant upon the whole work from home phenomenon. So there's a great. Uh, and quite humbling re-rating of, um, of assets that were regarded as uh, this kind of equity-like fixed income securities, kind of convertible bonds almost. You know, when you listen to people talk about the gateway cities, San Francisco, New York City, and like, and they, and they talked about the value of these office buildings only a few years ago, they would say that... Um, uh, these buildings uh, pay a good yield. The government bonds were yielding about nothing, but these buildings were yielding two or three. And uh, the value was inexorably rising because of uh, the pressures of uh, occupancy that would uh, part and parcel of the continuing trend in globalization. So these are global cities in a thriving world economy, uh, plenty of, um, of international mobility, and plenty of cheap capital. All that changed in a heartbeat. And uh, buildings now are 40% to down, 40, 50, 60% from the top. Um, so, but, but to, the, to the question about uh, uh, how long things take, uh, you know, this only, uh, we've talked uh, at grants here to uh, some very savvy workout investors in real estate. And they say we're like in the fourth or fifth inning of what it's meant to be. Uh, a nine inning game and uh, they are seeing a lot of 
supply come out for the bid, but no no real rush of transactions yet because people really haven't yet got a sense of where prices ought to settle. But we're setting up for a prolonged liquidation in commercial real estate. And of course, that has knock-on effects in the banking system. You probably saw, as did many of the uh, story in the Wall Street Journal, I think last week, about the, uh, the doom loop in uh, regional banking. And this had to do with the um, uh, with the heavy concentration in the loan books of regional banks of uh, real estate or related loans and in the heavy concentration in the bond portfolios of these banks of commercial mortgage backed securities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, big exposures well in excess of the collective net worth of these particular banks. So that, that so that the, 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 uh, the axis of commercial real estate and, and, uh, and, and banks and banking solvency, that access is, uh, is one worth worth paying attention to, but it's it's uh, it's it's a slow moving train, and there are other such things as well. You know, the whole private equity business, I think, is is a, is also a, a source of potential difficulty. Uh, it's by, of course, you know, famously, the nature of things. These companies are highly leveraged, and not all of them have near term coupon. Uh, near-term debt maturities. But when the debt is rolled over, they're going to be faced with much higher interest bills on uh, a leveraged capital structure. So sticking with commercial real estate, and I'd love to actually ask you a follow-up question on the private equity, uh, get your perspective on that. But <clears throat> yes, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the same movie play out. I suppose you are. Regional banks have taken increasingly an increasingly large share of the commercial real estate pie since 2008. And I think now something like 70% of commercial real estate is held by small regional banks. Um, you can maybe argue that's the, the most vulnerable within the banking sector. When Silicon Valley and First Republic had their crash last March, similar to our conversation 10 minutes ago, you know, a crisis begins, some events occur. We then ask the question, will this continue? And if it doesn't continue immediately, we make the assumption that the crisis is over, right? But these things take a long time to play out. And obviously, you know, spent the year wondering, will the other shoe drop from the commercial real estate standpoint? Will we see another massive crisis in the regional banking sector? And although only, I think, three or four banks went under last spring, the total assets under management, I believe, were larger than all the banks that went under in 2008, uh, you know, just to give some perspective, I believe that's correct. Um, and so, you know, do I have that right? It's a waiting game. Eventually that shoe will drop. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's, it's interesting to, to, uh, uh, to consider um, the place of uh, real estate in the asset side of the banking portfolio, banking balance sheet um, from the beginnings uh, of uh, of national banking charters in the United States. This goes back to the Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, real estate was uh, prohibited as an asset in a nationally chartered bank because real estate is inherently illiquid. Sure. And um, uh, so, if the, if the borrower, if the stock, if the uh, depositors suddenly want their money back, um, uh, and if you are loaded up with real estate, you'll be hard pressed to realize the value of that. Uh, in time to pay off the anxious depositors, that's called a bank run. So that that was that um, that's that uh, 
prohibition was in force until the Banking Act of 1935. And the significance of 1935 was that was about the time that the, the FDIC got up and running. And the thinking uh, then when uh, when the FDIC, FDIC came into existence was you, you didn't need the prohibition against commercial real estate concentration because uh, liquidity was no longer the principal risk in banking. The FDIC would prevent bank runs, and it did for decades after its formation. Uh, but I think now you're starting to uh, be reminded of the wisdom of our ancestors with respect to the suitability of, of real estate as a banking asset. Um, you know, it was it's no easy matter to liquidate uh, mortgages or even CMBS in some markets when you have to. So I, I, I think that, uh, uh, that, that the banking system is is more vulnerable than it might be ex if the uh, if the stigma against real estate were still a part of the canon of good banking practice. Okay. I, I want to pivot to private equity for a minute. And if you could explain two things as best you could on this front, I'd love to hear your perspective on why private equity is vulnerable right now. What is the crisis that might be occurring uh, beneath the surface? And in tandem with that, what is the impact, right? What would the impact be if there was um, contagion in the private equity sector that did actually cause some kind of a crisis in the markets? Like how would the average retail investor maybe feel that? What would we see occur uh, from your perspective, James? Um you know, uh, Jerome Powell had a good call on this uh, when he entered the Federal Reserve as a governor of the Federal Reserve Board in 2000 and I think 12. So I happen to have in front of me, Jay, I happen to have a quotation from Chairman Powell. And if you recall, he was a former uh, private equity promoter himself. And um, at a meeting of the FOMC in 2014, he said this, quote, we are not at peak level of booleans, said Powell, but we're in the same zip code and we have rates that are going to remain low for years ahead. So it's possible, it's plausibly said, plausible to me that our policy could push the price of financial assets much higher and set up a reaction that could significantly harm the economy. It's not a prediction, but a real risk. So um, so uh, he was early, that's no sit around grants interest rate observing. Um, but his point, uh, was valid in 2014. Um, and it is certainly valid today. If you look at the uh, ratio of um, of debt to uh, what they call EBITDA, which is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, have a liberal measure of, of corporate cash flow that's like six times. And that is a very aggressive level of leverage. That was at the year in 2021. And um, and it's probably understated because uh, the deal doers, the promoters, when they construct these transactions, assume a lot of efficiencies that don't always uh, come to fruition. So um, the cash flow is ordinarily understated. Uh, sorry, the cash flow, the the uh, uh, the uh, corporate managerial efficiencies are overstated, and uh, therefore cash flow is overstated and leverage understated. Um, so I I think that uh, an oak tree 
was out with a, uh, I think it's on their website, they have a very good piece on the risks in front of us with respect to private equity. I think they're, they're, they're there, they're serious, and they are, uh, certainly they are not going to diminish as rates continue to rise, if indeed rates continue to rise. Okay. In 2012, Ron Paul was running for president. He had mentioned he would nominate you for Fed chair to replace- You ever wonder why he didn't win? <laughs> I'd love to hear your take. <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. Uh, okay. But, you know, he had said publicly he would nominate you as Fed chair to replace Ben Bernanke. That, you know, that, 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 was the, that is the very best way to enter public service. It's in the imagination of the honored <laughs> <laughs> almost nominee, and you get to enjoy the uh, uh, the right. glory of the attention without any <laughs> anxieties of office. <laughs> well, I'll I'll pull on that. I mean, a what would you what would you do differently from Jerome Powell today if you were oh, in the Fed seat? Uh, well, I would not like to inherit his problems. If, if I don't think that I should own his problems, what I would have been a perfect Fed governor from 2012 on. So that's that's one consideration, Jay. Sure, yeah. Uh, but I, I think that the, um, I think he has a very difficult hand, as we all can agree. Um, I, if, if I were he, I think the first thing I would do is, uh, is talk less. And when I did talk, I would speak in the language of Humility, rather than that of um, uh, future uh, tense. How to say it? The future tense bureaucratic by telling people how things are going to work out and how we are going to meet those things that we are certain will work out in a certain way. I mean, the Fed's got no business making forecasts given its record, and central bankers, until fairly recently in this history of central banking, did not say anything but let their own actions talk for them thinking around the bank of england was that uh, uh saying too much is like yeah this is, this is a kind of an antique comment so uh, forgive it but it's an actual comment from the bank of england the governor is saying that um, it is like a woman protesting her purity or her innocence you simply don't claim things that uh, ought not to be talked about such as how the future is going to look. So when the Fed gets up in 2021, was it, and says that we are going to uh, compensate for periods of low inflation by uh, cleverly engineering offsetting periods of higher inflation, such as the average rate of inflation. Uh-uh. No, they have no power over that. They're, you have to, as the Fed chairman, you have to give um, respectful notice to the power of circumstance you have to you have to allow for the unexpected you have to uh, defer i would say to um uh to the desirability of interest rates discovered in the marketplace rather than imposed from a bureaucratic some bureaucratic height you know so um what would i do i would say that the way forward is to intervene less, to let markets determine clearing rates for interest, to not 
engineer imbalances in the economy through the suppression of interest rates. For the longer run, I would say that we should revisit the nature of our money itself and reconsider whether money ought not to be collateralized by something like gold bullion and to perhaps revert to a system of fixedness, of fixed exchange rates and fixed values of money, which to be sure have their own drawbacks, but the drawbacks might on net be rather less undesirable than the drawbacks we face and have continued to face with a system of untrammeled fiat currency creation. So I would hold that out as you know, the people have to decide for themselves whether they want that. You can't force that on a world of work. The way the gold standard evolved was through people desiring, deciding it was desirable. It became, it, 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 it grew organically and, uh, and prospered organically. So it can't be, it couldn't or shouldn't be imposed through mere legislation. I think, I think there has to be a period of, of discussion and, uh, and leadership and see whether people like the idea as laid out. But I, I, that's that would be my approximate program. You know, some of that just sounds like good life advice, absolving ourselves of the certainty we hold in the future, right? And the conviction we hold in our theses and maybe relinquishing some control. I, I think it's just good practice uh, yeah. to be prepared to be surprised. Um, okay, from this, I have to ask your perspective on the, the BRICS currency conversation because my audience is going to want to know your opinion on this. You know, a couple of things I might I might share just to preface it. There's a handful of directions this could go. There's definitely, it seems like a bit of a trend of de-dollarization occurring. How much substance is actually there? I'm not sure. One question that I have is this conversation has largely been held by politicians, right? The president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, was quoted a couple of weeks ago saying every night, I, I wonder why, you know, I need to transact in US dollars and and that, that may be fine, but I don't see the president of Vale, right? Brazil's biggest mining company asking that question and saying, oh, I wish I didn't have to transact in US dollars. I wish I could hold my treasury in Brazilian real. I've, I haven't seen the corporate sector stand up um, and raise their hand and say, we wish we could hold domestic currencies as opposed to US dollars. I've only seen the politicians do it. But what's your take on that? How much substance is there? Is this just something occurring on the margin for the odd commodity deal? Here and there, which is fine, and that can grow into something of substance five, ten years down the road. Or is it more real than we're giving it credit today? What's what's your take, James? Um, I would say it's a political PR rather than financial substance. Um, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't see the uh, this as being a movement. I, I, you know, to be sure, over the course of years, decades, generations, uh, currency preferences do shift, but they shift so slowly. You know. Pound sterling was the dominant world currency, and uh, then it stopped being so. It lost market share through the 20s and the 30s, but until the, the 1960s and 70s, and the Commonwealth countries of the former British Empire remained a, a favorite transaction currency. So there's a lot of habit um, in, uh, in monetary choice, and the dollar shouldn't underestimate uh, the dollar's uh, advantages. Um, Certainly, I I, um, I criticize the uh, the dollar system, the unanchored kind of improv uh, credit creation system that we have now. I but um, uh, there's something to be said for a familiar, ubiquitous, and universally accepted medium of exchange, and the dollar answers most of those criteria. 
Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Uh, my, my next question, I'm going to pivot back to the markets, I think, to wrap us up here. Um, you know, if we are transitioning from what was a 40-year secular decline in interest rates into potentially a 40-year increase, you know, if we reflect back in the 1980s to the, you know, the 2020s, the era of cheaper and cheaper and cheaper money led to a handful of very speculative bubbles that, you know, the obviously the dot-com bubble, the housing bubble in 2008, the everything bubble in 2020. Do pivots in secular trends of interest rates also, from your perspective, cause a shift in investor activity? Like, could we also be shifting maybe to an era of yield investments and value investing as opposed to, um, you know, gambling on speculative tech stocks as we've done so much of in the previous few decades? What do you think? I think so. Um, I guard myself a little bit about this because I certainly hope so. And one must always strain hope from um, cool left-brained investment calculations, although it's certainly not easy to do. But um, one of the things we've been thinking about here at Grants is the uh, the changing uh, correlations that might be in the offing owing to a change in the interest rate regime. You know, um, uh, the 60-40 uh, retirement portfolio, 60% equities, 40% bonds. That's that's a, a function of the perceived correlation between bonds and stock, not the perceived, the actual correlation during a time of, of disinflation or low inflation. You know, uh, uh, stocks don't do well, bonds will rally, vice versa. Uh, but in a time of stagflation, you could have recession with you know, unacceptably high rates of inflation, unacceptable to the marketplace. And lo and behold, stocks could decline as bonds decline. We've seen a little bit of that in the past couple of years. So correlations, I think, for example, the uh, correlation between real interest rates and gold is changing um, in favor of uh, gold bugs, of whom I am one. And uh, who'd have thunk it that uh, a five and a quarter, five and a half percent funds rate and gold price would be a 1900 number instead of a 1600 number. So um, uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, that if if this uh, thesis of a looming secular change in the direction of rates is at hand, if that's the case, that all manner of familiar correlations between assets um, and between assets and economic activity that could come in for a change, you know, and, and value stocks could do rather well. Um, I'm hoping they will from reasons of my own asset allocation. Uh, gold does well for the same reason. Um, but um, I think it's, it's kind of an exciting time. It, uh, you, know, you, you get to think about new things. You get to think about how uh, new relationships might develop. But treasuries had kind of a monopoly on the idea of financial safety when, when interest rates were persistently declining and when the Treasury's credit was reckoned as AAA, AAA, well, now the Treasury is it's kind of a split-rated credit. Um, uh, there is increasing doubt about its uh, um, its solidity. I think that doubt is well warranted. So maybe gold reclaims a market, more market share in financial safety. Um, so those are some of the things we're thinking about here. Well, that to me seems like a more important thread to follow when I think about, you know, 
currency alternatives and and you know what what the BRICS are up to in all of this because the evidence is more tangible, right? We're seeing a massive increase in central bank gold acquisitions, and I'm not I'm not I don't have the most recent uh, report in front of me, but you know as of end of March, I think the rolling 12 month central bank gold acquisition number was over 1,200 tons, which is colossal, and that's like a 50 year record or a 40 year record, and you know, it, it doesn't mean that these countries are going towards a gold standard, but it does mean they're seeking optionality, or I think it might mean they're seeking optionality. You, you, think, you think rather better of these people, these money printing people, these money printing fiends when they buy the thing that I'm buying. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not so bad after all, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they are. <laughs> it makes me wonder what they're paying attention to, right? Why? Because it it does give me confidence. I mean, I, I hold a lot of physical gold, and and uh, you know, when I look for torque in the market right now, I'm I'm loving. You know, it's, it's a little bit like having it both ways, you know. I, I I've checked myself on this too because you, um, uh, do you really want to be in the same company as uh, as uh, <laughs> you know? I mean, is that, is that is that good investment company? I I can I can see his reasoning. I can see the reasoning of the of countries that uh, watch the United States in a rather high-handed way uh, impose sanctions here and there and say, well, I, you know, I'm, um, uh, we have a lot of dollars, perhaps a little bit of that monetary asset that preceded the dollar that has given good service over the millennia and then it's no one's liability. That might be something good to have in the vault. And mm -hmm. I like that chain of reasoning, no matter who says it. But uh, um, uh, so that I, th I think some of that is at work in the world as well. Yes. Okay. Okay. Final question then. Do you see that sentiment trickling down to financial institutions within the United States? You know? No, not yet. I mean, I, that, perhaps that's to come, but uh, the, uh, there's some very thoughtful people who made a very good point that uh, uh, the bid is coming from uh, you know, east of the sun. As they say in this poem or uh, east of Germany, I guess. So the, the bid is coming from the east. And the ETF liquidation from the West, and uh, one of the surprises in my career is the staying power of the reputation of the Federal Reserve for expertness, incompetence, and uh, and uh, and its claim to authority. I mean, how many demonstrations do people require that the Federal Reserve actually doesn't know what's going to happen next? But still. Um, and I, I take the uh, uh, the uh, very, I would say, the very low holdings of gold on the part of the American investing public, and certainly among the institutions in America, low low going low gold holdings among the institutions as as unspoken evidence of their faith in the judgment and the capacity of the Federal Reserve to order our monetary affairs. If they didn't have that judgment, they would own a lot more bullion than they do. Uh, so I, 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 I mean, I, I do my best, Jay. Every two weeks, I remind them why they ought not to be so trusting of this organization that is unworthy of their confidence. But they seem not to be listening. I, um, what do you suggest there? I think more subscribers to Grant's interest rate observer, Mike. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's partially recency bias, right? If you've been an investor in the market for the last fifteen years, I mean, you've learned one thing: markets go up. Sometimes they correct and then they go up again. Now, 15 years isn't forever, but it's a long time for a lot of new money to have arrived, new investors to have matured, whole careers, you know, essentially have occurred there. And so 
you know, recency bias is really strong and it doesn't seem so recent if it was eight, nine years ago, you know, we're creatures of habit. And, uh, you know, we also want to be led, unfortunately, because I, I, the reason I love gold is because of the sovereignty it gives me and the optionality outside of, you know, it's the one asset I can really justify as having no counterparty risk. So I feel like it puts me in the driver's seat and I like that. Right. But to get there, you have to first acknowledge that nobody's got your back. However, that's a good thing, right? If nobody's got your back, it puts you in control. Well, then how do you solidify control? You know, and, and then you sort of go down the path. And that's what, you know, that's how I ended up owning physical gold. But uh, there's no shortage of examples of of the Fed attempting to have your back, right? And and uh, and so oh, it's it, it, it's got your back, it's got your front, it's, it's got, <laughs> uh, got your head full Nelson, is what it has. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the it's especially it's got your head. This the whole the whole drift of monetary policy towards imagining expectations and and uh, and uh, and talking things up or talking things down of getting people to think along the lines of um, uh, the board of governors. I think it's a very worrisome tendency this whole business about communications what's what's the, the messaging that's the firm that's the word so what what's our messaging our messaging is a, a funny line in american political history about one of the candidates for office like president maybe 1924 and the candidate was popping off in ways that were not advancing his cause and his handlers told him what we want out of you is silence and damn little of that mm. right Right. We want out of the Fed silence and precious little of that. Uh, I want them to stop uh, stop coaching from the sidelines, like little league parents. You know, <laughs> oh, do, do. <laughs> yeah. And on base. Interesting. Look, James, I got to thank you for coming on the show and and chatting with me. This has been really fun, and uh, I love oh, your perspective. You're entirely welcome, James. Thanks, thanks for having me. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.